Shalom Chavarim, this is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians, wishing you Shavua Tov, B'Shem Yeshua Meshicheno, a good week in Jesus, our Messiah, blessed be He. And if you've been following the Torah readings for this year so far, we're in the Torah portions now that have to do with the giving of the Torah at Sinai called Matan Torah, the giving or the gift of the Torah. And that raises a lot of questions as to what exactly Torah is and whether or not we can understand scripture without accessing human history and relying on certain oral traditions that go into our understanding of the written word of God. And that's the question I want to look at today. Is all tradition bad or do we find a place for it in our walk with the Lord? So let's talk about that as we discuss Torah and tradition. Now, before we get into the specifics of how we're to understand the revelation of the Torah at Sinai and human tradition, the tradition of the elders, I think it's good to think outside the box a little bit here and ask what law is in a different way. Now, C.S. Lewis brought up the idea of natural law, moral law, transcendental values as being what he called the Tao. And by that word, Lewis meant a theoretical construct or a doctrine of objective values. The Tao is the belief that certain attitudes correspond with what's really true, whereas other attitudes don't correspond to the way that the universe really is. So thinking maps or corresponds or coheres either in a right relation or not, and the right relation is the way of the Tao that is common to all people of conscience and all different cultures. As a philosophical Platonist, I believe that C.S. Lewis also would regard the Tao as to refer to ideal objects such as mathematical truth, such as three sides makes a triangle and two and two equals four, and that measurement is possible, the empirical world is something real, and there's objective reality that is measurable and knowable. So this is part of the Tao as well, but that's a different aspect of the discussion. But whether we're talking about ideal ethical reality or spiritual reality or ideal physical reality, in either case there is a Tao, there is a right relationship. When you're in right relationship to the Tao, you're in the truth. And when you're outside of that relationship, you're in untruth. So again, that corresponds to C.S. Lewis's realism where truth is defined as that which is and or being a state of mind in which there is a propositional content that describes what is as being is and that being an accurate relationship that would be true and that would be being in alignment with the Tao from a cognitive point of view with regard to spiritual reality it has to do with living in harmony with ethical moral reality living in peace and that is an aspect of the will more than it is cognitive knowledge per se the goal of the Tao was harmony especially in our social relationships, so that when we were in harmony with the Tao or the transcendental order of moral reality, we find ourselves in harmony with others and social order and peace would be prevalent. Now, all this might sound a little weird or esoteric, but it's not meant to be. It's really another term for universal conscience and the role that that played in human history. 
after the fall of man in the garden, the exile from Gan Eden or the Garden of Eden, Adam and Chava and their children, their descendants inherited the sin nature and their understanding became darkened. And yet there was still enough light for them to be held accountable for revealed moral truth through nature and through the instrumentation of conscience. So that leads to the question of what conscience is. Now Webster's defines conscience as the sense of moral goodness or blameworthiness of someone's conduct or your own conduct or your intentions or your character, together with a feeling of obligation to do the right thing or to be good. The Latin word conscientia means knowing with. And again, the knowing with has to do with something intuited about reality. It's an intuition of moral reality and an appeal ultimately to a form of justice that pervades all moral exchanges between people. It's an intuitive understanding, an appropriation of moral reality by means of being immersed in God's creation is what it is. There is an imprint within the heart that knows intuitively what justice is and appeals to it. So in a sense, we are hardwired by God to have a conscience. Uh, that's, of course, a theological statement, but it still seems to be true. Anthropologically, you can look at different cultures and examine their core beliefs, and they all agree on certain things. For example, that it's right to honor people and wrong to hurt people. It's right to affirm life, and it's wrong to murder. There's no culture anywhere that celebrates cowardice or rape or vicious actions of people. This refutes thoroughgoing holistic relativism. And actually, when I was in college and studying philosophy, uh, one argument that I found pretty compelling to ultimately refute the moral skeptic was the idea of this. Um, we imagine possible worlds, ontologies. These are possible sets of circumstances where things can hold true without contradiction. And the question was raised, can you imagine a possible world in which it would be permissible morally to torture a baby for your pleasure and if I ran into somebody who could not affirm that that was morally abhorrent, then basically the conversation was over because the categories for discussion about moral reality were ultimately trashed at that point. In other words, you cannot have a moral discussion with someone who does not have the language or the means of expressing moral reality. Now, I know that's sort of an extreme case, but it sort of illustrates the point that there are some bounding conditions to our idea of right and wrong. Another way to say this is that if there is no possible world wherein it is okay to be a sadistic person that harms other people, especially innocent people, then that becomes a necessary moral truth that's true in all possible worlds, demonstrating that moral transcendental reality exists. And most cultures, historically and in different parts of the world, have acknowledged the moral law of God or the universal duties of conscience. Paul makes an appeal to this in the book of Romans when he says that the nations that don't have the law by nature do the things of the law, even though they don't have the law of God revealed to them at Sinai and so on, they themselves have a law of conscience. They operate under the principle that the conscience is witnessing unto them between one another and either accusing or else defending the choices they're making on a moral level. 
That's something assumed in Scripture that holds true for all the, all the peoples of the world, not just Jewish people, but everyone is born from Adam and Eve, and therefore everyone has this B'Tselem Elohim, this image of God, and this awareness of moral right and wrong. Just as it says in Romans one twenty, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that people are without excuse, that referring to the existence of God, Elohim, the sovereign power and creator of the universe, that by analogy also applies to the moral law of God within. So it's the, it's the natural law above and the moral law within that both testify of the existence of an all-powerful creator who is also the source of transcendental moral reality. Note further that it's the invisible things of God from the creation of the world being clearly seen, and that having to do then with logical inference, the laws of connection, the magnetism of grammar, if you will, the, the things that make uh, logical connections seem so compelling, and that makes intelligibility possible, that is, knowledge of things, are clearly evidenced in our rational minds. So those that sort of reasoning also applies to the ethical realm as well and holds a similar validity. Now, while all that may be true, and it is, I believe it's revealed in Scripture, at least implied therein, it's a matter of fact that people don't keep the law of God and don't want to keep the law of God and are perverse in their hearts, and that needs to be accounted for as well. In short, people are out of step with the Tao, or they're in a state of rebellion to moral reality, and that is really the essence of the problem of sin, and describes the fact of the lawlessness that's embedded within the fallen human heart. This state of lawlessness or anarchy or the rejection of the Tao or the way of being rightly related to spiritual moral reality marks the first ten generations from Adam until Noah, and it's sometimes called the dispensation of conscience or era of human government, but whatever you call it, it precedes the giving of a law at Sinai, and the explicit revelation of God's will, ratified and formalized at Sinai. It was an abysmal failure, as evidenced by the Great Flood and God's judgment on the earth, so that something more needed to be implemented. First, I believe, became essential to have a further clarification of what the moral requirements of God were, and that's the function of Sinai, and that would lead to the revelation of the altar at Sinai as well, and our need for forgiveness for breaking the moral law of God, with a description of the need for blood atonement, the blood sacrifice and exchange, life for life principles I've talked about before, this being the means by which God may impute righteousness by those who put their trust in him, first through the sacrificial system foreshadowing the coming of Yeshua as the great Lamb of God who offered himself up in exchange for our sin as the healer of the breach, as the true way that became flesh and teaches us the way and delivers us from the way of death, spiritual death being the condition of being separated from God, becoming healed of the inner alienation and broken relationship we have with ultimate reality. Now, before I get into the role of the Torah and tradition again, I want to back up one more time and talk about the truth that Torah 
predated the giving of the law at Sinai, since the divine wisdom was passed down from Adam and Eve through the godly line of Seth to Noah, and then from Noah's son Shem and his line through Eber until the advent of Terah and his son Abram. Now of Abraham it was said that he observed the divine wisdom of Torah some 400 years before the Sinai revelation. Abraham kept my charge, my commandments, and my statutes, and my Torah. It says in Genesis 26, 5. So Moses, too, kept the Torah before Sinai. For example, he offered Passover sacrifice in Egypt before God had proclaimed any laws of sacrifice at Sinai. And later, this Passover sacrifice of the Lamb of God was enshrined as the consummate sacrifice offered every day, that is, every evening and morning, to commemorate the redemption of the blood of atonement given to redeem God's people. So the other sacrifices were given to reinforce the principle of life for life exchange prefigured by the sacrifice of Isaac at Mount Moriah. For more on all that, see the Hebrew for Christians website. My point here is that Torah is a general term. It's not as specific as a law term such as Mishpatim or Hukim or some of the more technical terms that are in the Hebrew text. So keep in mind that Torah comes from a root word yara, meaning to shoot an arrow or to aim. When it's in relation to moral and spiritual reality or truth, the word means teaching or instruction rather than law. It essentially means doing the will of God. So keep that in mind as we go further on this. Okay, all that about conscience and the moral law or the natural moral law and how we can apprehend it. All that is meant as a prequel to the discussion of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. And I think the first thing I want to make note of here is that when the Ten Commandments were uttered, or better yet, the words Aserat Hadabrot would be ten declarations. When those were declared by God at Sinai, do you recall what happened? First of all, the people heard the words in the midst of the shofar blast and the fire and so on and they drew back in great fear the first commandment was this was the starting point of revelation it was an affirmation or declaration that god was the lord your god and so the first commandment really is that of faith and the second commandment was that there would be no other gods or idols before the lord now what's interesting from my point of view is that the people drew back in terror at this point and started to beg that Moses would be their intercessor for them or mediator. And I think it's telling that this happened because nothing about the Ten Commandments here other than the obvious statement of fact that the Lord was their deliverer at the beginning was new revelation. It's really an amplification of the conscience Somewhat similar to what Yeshua did on the Sermon on the Mount when he elaborated and gave his commentary on the Ten Commandments or the Beatitudes. You can read that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7. through But my point is, is that the people drew back in fear because there was a sense that the inner life was fully known by God, fully disclosed, something that God had a claim to. And this was in some ways new. It was bringing down are bringing together, I should say, the two concepts of God being Elohim, the sovereign creator, judge, and power of the universe, and Yudhebabhe being the savior, and putting those two concepts together. But 
power and moral authority and salvation all unified in sort of a trinity of ideas was too much for the people to really understand and take in at that time, and so they drew back in fear. For a bit more information on this aspect of the giving of the Ten Commandments, please see the Hebrew for Christians website. Okay, I'm not going to repeat the account of Moses and the children of Israel receiving the Ten Commandments and the law at Sinai, and I have a lot written about that on the Hebrew for Christians website, as well as some other audio podcasts that discuss that. So instead, I want to get to this question about the role of tradition. Now, Jewish tradition says that the written law of God, let's just restrict that for the moment to the two luchot, or two tablets of the Ten Commandments, that was given in conjunction with the oral law, which has to do with the interpretive side of things. And I want to sort of think about that for a minute and how to make some sense of it. So oftentimes the first thing you'll hear in context of this discussion with rabbis and other people in Israel and elsewhere is that the oral law is fundamental and coexists with the written Torah because God began the Sinai revelation with oral words. In other words, it wasn't written revelation. He could have just handed Moses the two tablets and that would have been that. But instead he spoke first. And then there was this reaction and dialectical dialogue going on with the people. And then it became clear as time went on. And these were in symbiotic or harmonious relationship working with each other. The written law and the oral law. And how those play out together. Now I realize there's a lot of nonsense in Jewish midrashim and imaginative interpretations about some of the things that happen with the Torah revelation. I don't really want to get into that side of things at the moment, but I do want to raise the more general question of how important tradition really is in general to understanding the scriptures. And here's a story that sort of illustrates this. A pagan came to Hillel seeking to convert to the faith, but was troubled with the idea of tradition, though he did accept the idea of the written scriptures. Since the man didn't know how to read Hebrew, however, Hillel began pointing to letters in the Torah scroll to teach him the alphabet. He said, this is an Aleph, this is a Beit, this is a Gimel, and so on, until the man began to understand the letters of the alphabet. Now come tomorrow, and I'll teach you some more, he said. The next day, Hillel pointed to the exact same letters, but reversed their names. He said, this is Gimel, this is Beit, this is Aleph, and so on. Now the convert was completely confused. But yesterday, you said just the opposite. Hillel replied, now you've had your very first lesson. You see that the written word is insufficient, and we need the tradition to explain God's word. Another way to make the same point is to say that Torah was not revealed along with a dictionary to define the meaning of its words. Now, as you dig more into this subject, you're going to discover that in Jewish thought, the word Torah is a general concept that implies a wide range of related ideas and concepts that focus on discerning God's will. A primary distinction is between the written Torah on the one hand and the oral Torah on the other. The written Torah, called Torah Shabichtav, or Torah that is written, it refers to the text that's been meticulously transmitted since the time of Moses in the form of what's called Sefer Torah, that's a kosher Torah scroll. The oral Torah, on the other hand, is called Shabal Peh, that which is oral, and it refers to legal and interpretive traditions handed down by word of mouth until these were codified in the Mishnah Gemara, or what's otherwise known as the Talmud. 
The oral tradition further includes the midrash, that's your a traditional exegesis. The responsa, these are questions and answers given by paskim, they're called, or legal scholars, and the shulchan aruch, this is a codification of Jewish case law, as well as various other commentaries had down over the centuries. Now, some people even claim that Kabbalah is part of the oral tradition, though, strictly speaking, it's not regarded as part of the oral Torah as understood in Jewish tradition. Now, Jewish thought maintains that the written Torah and the oral Torah are complementary, since Moses himself established the role of judges and law courts in the written Torah itself. You can look at that in Exodus 18, Numbers 11, and Deuteronomy 16, for example. Ultimately, the oral Torah derives its justification and substance from the written revelation, and indeed it's somewhat artificial to distinguish the two in practice since the written Torah was preserved through tradition, that's scribal transmission, and the decision about which books were to be included in the canon and so on, just as the oral Torah was validated by the written words of the Torah scroll. So within both of these Torahs, you can also make some other distinctions. For example, in the written Torah, there's both the narrative aspect and God's explicit commandments. These are called mitzvot. And that corresponds roughly with the distinction between agadic or homiletic and halachic, that's legal literature found in the oral Torah. In addition, just as the mitzvot of the written Torah can be subdivided into different categories, such as mishpatim, these are logical laws, chukot, these are divine decrees, and idot, these are testimonials, such as holidays. So the Jewish legal tradition discusses the corresponding ideas of takanot, that's case law, based on mishpatim, gezerot, these are rabbinical decrees, based on chukot, and minhagim, these are customs, and that's based on the practice of the holidays and other edot-type things mentioned in the written Torah. So in short, there's a sort of circular reasoning involved, in the traditional idea of Torah, the written Torah is passed down and validated by means of the oral Torah, but the oral Torah derives its authority from the written Torah. There's a nice diagram that I've done on the Hebrew for Christians website that illustrates the relationships between the written Torah and the oral Torah that I think you'll find really helpful if you take a look at it. might make some of this seem a little clearer. Recall that in the Torah, the Mishkan, or the tabernacle, was consecrated on what's called Rosh Chodeshim. That's the first day of the first month of the year. Now, the Jewish commentator Rashi noted that Moses spent the entire week before the state assembling and then on the same day dismantling the tabernacle to instruct the Levites on how to do this. Some scholars have suggested that Moses' actions were actually a parable However, uh, the tabernacle was not a home for God, like some shrine for a tribal deity, after all. Metaphorically, it represented the presence of the Shekinah, or the Spirit, in the midst of God's people, where it's written, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. We understand that to refer to the hearts of the people. It is the Lord as dwelling in the midst of his people that's the true presence of God, not some man-made structure, no matter how beautiful the Shekinah dwells within our hearts and is no longer confined to a temple. We're living stones of a greater temple, it says in the New Testament. Nevertheless, Moses' object lesson remains for us seven times. The tabernacle was set up only to be pulled back down. And though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again, said King Solomon in Proverbs twenty-four sixteen. We strive to move ahead in our spiritual lives, even if we experience repeated setbacks. 
Even if our lives are shattered by failure, we can take hope. God will help you rebuild. None of the king's men can put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but the Lord surely can. Now, Midrash says that Moses was once tested to see if he was able to receive the Torah. For 40 consecutive days, he would study Torah only to immediately forget everything he learned. Eventually, however, he remembered his studies and God began preparing him for his role in the kingdom. So take heart and keep pursuing the goal in order to win the prize that's offered by God in the Messiah, Yeshua. That's Philippians 3.14. But let me go back to the original question. Should we be tied to uh, the Jewish calendar and traditions and ways of reckoning time, for example? Are we obligated to think and act that way? Well, even though we might have to build and rebuild our sense of sacred space within ourselves, this is our inner Mishkan, so to speak, it's not hopeless to begin to just do that. I can, of course, opt out and simply repeat the mantra, Jesus loves me just the way I am all day long. And while that's gloriously true that God loves us like that, remaining satisfied with our condition is actually a sign of weakness. The life of authentic discipleship is one of hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and it's a sort of divine discontent. The Apostle Paul said, When the appointed time came, God sent forth his Son, born from a woman born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as children. That's Galatians 4. Now, being adopted into God's household means understanding how the house sets its clock, so to speak. It means being attuned to the rhythm and order of the seasons, days, and even hours of the day. Since the end of our salvation is adoption, that is our new identity as God's children, is it correct to think it a form of slavery to be mindful of such things like this? Or is it perhaps another step of growth? And incidentally, how are we to escape it? Don't think that Christianity, for example, is devoid of tradition. You go to a normal church service of any number of denominations, you'll find all sorts of customs and traditions that are embedded in there. The actual Protestant method of having a pastor stand up in front of everybody and give more or less a monologue is similar to the Roman Senate. So the Christian church is not immune from any of these comments as well. All this comes to roost in our lives when we think about praxis or how we live our faith in terms of our spirituality. Now, we're not uh, legalists. We don't believe that we're saved by merit or good works, but... We don't think, on the other hand, that God gave us the Bible and the whole story, the grand narrative and the times and seasons of our Lord and the prophecies therein for no good reason. We also believe that God wants us to engage in customs and tradition to some level. For example, we're still Sabbath keepers in the sense of whether you do Saturday worship or Sunday worship, um, Sabbath actually never changed, not in the New Testament. It was never re recalled or repealed, uh, contrary to what some Christians think of the Sunday being the Lord's Day. That's, that's a misinterpretation. It's not the day of the Lord, Yom Gadol Adonai. This is just the first day of the week. And that was a day where you could handle money and get, make a gathering and have money saved and set aside and put put toward uh, charitable purposes and so on. So it was a good day of the week to have corporate worship. There's no problem with Sunday worship, but it's not Sabbath. I mean, logically speaking, Yeshua would never teach people to break the Sabbath. He would never teach people that the Sabbath no longer has any bearing when it was he himself who was the voice of the fire speaking at Sinai and giving the instruction to Moses in the first place.
So God's not the author of confusion on that point. That said, Yeshua had his own interpretation of Sabbath and what the refraining of work meant. And it was a time set apart, sanctified for holiness. It was a time in which we were to engage in healing and divine connection and fellowship with other people. It was supposed to be a blessing, not a negative, heavy burden on us. So that is something he explained about Sabbath, but he didn't relinquish it or say that it no longer applied to his followers. And we need to understand that. And Sabbath has a prophetic message for us. So does it matter if you invest in that? Does it matter? Even though the Torah does speak of it being a delight, and the prophets mention that it will be observed in the world to come, should we observe ourselves in the Sabbath experience? Should we have family over? Should we have table fellowship on that day? Should we light Sabbath candles and have challah and say the prescribed blessing? Should we do Kiddush on that day? So there's those kinds of questions that start tying into the way we live or walk our faith. And they shouldn't be disregarded, of course. And we have to settle the role of tradition to kind of get at that and to see if that's something that we feel comfortable with. There's legalism. Now, this is the idea that we're duty-bound to perform certain rituals or behave a certain way, follow a set of rules. And then there's the liberty we have as the children of God and heirs of God. There's a higher way of understanding the same thing, namely understanding as an adult rather than as a child. When I was a child, I thought like a child, and I understood as a child, it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, understanding your identity as a son or daughter of the Lord makes you no longer an outsider, a child, or outcast to the covenantal obligations and promises given to Jewish people. As a co-heir and fellow member, you are adopted into the household of God and you're a new creation. Being a Jew is a matter now of having a new heart. And see that, look at Romans 2, 28 through 29. So we are Talmudim. This is a word that comes from the Hebrew word lamad, meaning to learn. And the word for a teacher is melamad, from the same root. Education, or hanuk, is essential to our walk as disciples of Messiah. And again, when Yeshua was asked what the great commandment was, he went through the scripture that was well known at the time, namely citing the Shema as well as the Ve'ahavta. These were commonly known things, and they were agreed upon through the community of faith as being the essence of what the Torah was teaching, and Jesus affirmed that. So he wasn't contradicting all tradition, of course, nor was he contradicting the laws that God gave for the holidays, which he fulfilled, nor was he contradicting the jots and tittles of the Torah as it was being transmitted and preserved, nor was he contradicting the division of the Tanakh, or the Jewish Bible, into the Torah, the law, the writings, and the prophets. So he was embedded in that, and he had engaged all that, and his Bible was the Jewish Bible of his day, which he accepted. So we need to be intelligent about this, and full of faith that God is faithful to his people, and that he preserved his truth to us, and that the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, will reveal to us what we need to understand from Scripture consulting one appropriate tradition and the meaning of words and perhaps some commentaries and things in the past. There's nothing really wrong with that, but above all, we pray and we read by the rule of faith, trusting in God's sovereign power to keep his word preserved for us. Well, I have a lot more on the Hebrew for Christians website. 
a lot of different articles on the role of tradition. I'm just scratching the surface here, but I encourage you to look at it. I have things on Pircarabot, which are the ethics of the fathers, things on, as I mentioned, the role of tradition and the roots of tradition on the Hebrew for Christians website. So go to the search box if you're looking for this information and just type tradition or role of tradition in the search box and you'll see some of these things. So I think I'm going to stop now because I didn't want to make this a very long Torah talk today, but I want to express my love and thanks to you for listening in and your patience with me as I kind of went through some of these issues. So may God give us wisdom as we learn the importance and balance between the written word and the tradition, the, the respect we need to show those who've gone before us and our teachers and the sages and particularly, of course, the New Testament teaching of Yeshua and his followers and how that's embedded and we hold fast to that as part of our walk with the Lord. I'm going to end now with a great Hebrew blessing, Birchat Kohanim, and I pray that it will minister grace to you as you hear it and that it will be received by your spirit, your inner man, and that you will be strengthened by the power and name of the Lord God Almighty to overcome all things and to walk in the strength and truth and radiance and glory of Yeshua, our beloved Messiah. Yevarechacha Adonai v'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panave lecha v'ikuneka Yisa Adonai panave lecha v'yasem lecha shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his healing love, his shalom, his blessing, his life, his love. May you be embraced by him and receive from him all that is necessary to walk in the truth of the Spirit of God in this age. Amen. Shavuatov. Chodesh Tov, every blessing be yours and our beloved Messiah, Yeshua Chavrim. Thank you for being a part of Hebrew for Christians. information, visit us at www.hebrewforchristians.com or Google Learn Hebrew Free.